This is Ian Hunter, and you're listening to Dr. Womack from Salon Everything Fab Four. Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. We heard this roar go up from the street, and we were on the fifth floor. And so we climbed up to the roof to see what was going on and looked over the parapet down onto Park Avenue. And there was a a mob of young women on Park Avenue spilling off the sidewalk. And I asked somebody else who lived in the apartment, "What, what are they screaming about? And somebody said, it's the Beatles. Today's guest is Barbara Feldon, an actress, author, and model best known for portraying Agent 99 on the classic 1960s sitcom, Get Smart. Feldon was born Barbara Ann Hall in a suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and graduated from Bethel Park High School before studying drama at Carnegie Mellon University. Soon after, she departed for New York City to pursue a career in acting, where a stint as a showgirl led to her appearance on the game show, The $64,000 Question, where she took home the top prize for her knowledge of Shakespeare. The next year, Barbara married Lucienne Felden Verdeau, a handsome European she'd been dating, and took Felden as her last name personally and professionally. Working as a fashion model led to a few TV ad spots before landing the one that would make her a household face lolling about on an animal rug and daring all the male tigers out there to try Revlon's top brass hair tonic. The ad would soon land Felden more television gigs, notably playing George C. Scott's character's girlfriend in the show East Side, West Side, which was produced by Talent Associates, a company that just happened to be developing a new show with writers Mel Brooks and Buck Henry called Get Smart. Securing the plum role of Agent 99 in the spy spoof opposite comedian Don Adams became Feldon's biggest break, leading to an Emmy nomination and several film roles to boot. She was on the show for the entirety of its 1965 to 1970 run, and to this day she's recognized on the streets of New York for having played the role and receives fan mail from the old and young alike, thanking her for bringing a smart, sophisticated female character to television. In more recent years, Feldon has written two books, 2003's Living Alone and Loving It, A Guide to Relishing the Solo Life, and in 2022, Getting Smarter, a memoir, which recounts for the first time the true story of her marriage and the many lessons she's learned since. Welcome, Barbara Feldon. I thought it might be fun if we just, um, to kick things off, if we if we spoke about you um, and and how you got into the business, as they say. How did how did that come about? Because it wasn't a straight path, as it were, right? You grew up in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I I wanted to be a trapeze artist first. <laughs> we had gone to see the Ringley Brothers Barman Bailey Circus, and I thought that's it. That's my career path. And then I started studying ballet, and that was, um, I don't get into that a, a great deal in the book, uh, because I, I, I had to take out so much from the book because I wanted to get to the story about my husband. But um, I, I always knew that, well, from the time, this is in the book too, um, from the time I was in first grade when we had a little percussion band and 
kids were banging on oatmeal boxes and tin pans and I had a triangle and I, I had a little solo and at one point the percussion band stops and I have my solo and I ding three times and as I dinged, is that the word? <laughs> um, I, I looked out past the triangle and saw my mother in the middle of a little group of women in the on the gymnasium in the gymnasium and she was so concentrated on me which was of course children you know feel they never get enough of their mothers and there she was i had her all to myself through those three dings on the triangle and honestly it was an epiphany if you could use that word for a six-year-old <laughs> <laughs> um and i I didn't want to get off the stage. It was so beautiful. I felt like I was just being held by her. And I think later on, that need for attention, that need to be seen, really, um, is what drives a lot of actors. And then it's very fortuitous if they find out along the way that they actually can do it rather easily and uh, and get people to look at them and get and it doesn't have to be people. It can be cameras because the the eye of the camera. And I, happily, I outgrew that, but not for many decades. <laughs> um, but even being a model, you know, I was being seen by the camera. And I, so I think that I always wanted to be, you know, performing, whether it was up in the top of the tent you know, flying between partners, you know, uh, doing somersaults or, or uh, modeling. And yeah, that's how it began. Now, at first, before that, though, you were, as you, as you write in, in your new book, uh, a backyard ballerina, well, almost <laughs> on point in our driveway, hardly my swan-like moment but the beginning of an obsession with dance that got me through the indignities of adolescence. Yes, yes, it, it really did. But it was beyond that. Um, I don't know about you if there's a point where something happens and it's as though a wall in front of you just falls down and then you see this huge cinerama of life or experience. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, um, a little girlfriend of mine, Mitzi, and I were doing the blackboards, and she said, oh, will, you, will you do mine tonight because I have a ballet class in the, down in the gym? I didn't know what ballet was. I'd never seen a, you know, a dance program or anything. And she said, why don't you come down and watch later? So I did her blackboards, and I, I went down to the gym, and I pushed open the gym door a little bit, and there in the middle of the gym was Jean Ralph, red hair and shorts and high heels. She was the teacher. And she saw me and she said, come in, dear. Why don't you, uh, here, why don't you join us? So she gave me a paper fan. And she said, now, when I put the music on, I want you just to make a big art with your arm and pass the fan to the next girl. So she walked over to, a, I, it was probably one of those wind-up record players, you know, in those mm -hmm. days and there was a record on it, and she put the needle down on it, and it was Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite. And as I heard that music, dum, 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 and I made an arc with my arm to the music, it was as though the roof of the gymnasium split apart, and I was in some kind of heaven that I didn't know existed, but that felt more like home than real life. And that was my first experience with dance. And from then on, I did want to be a dancer. And um, I didn't have good training in Pittsburgh. And also I was very tall. And so, you know, clearly, unless I was going to be a soloist, which I, I really believe I would not have been, I, but that did preoccupy me all during my junior high school years and, and through, well, through high school too. So when you, when you finish high school and, you know, 
you can see these opportunities sort of splayed out in front of you. What happens next? Um, what? <laughs> and interestingly, um, I'm curious, what is the route that gets you to answer the $64,000 question? Um, I think our listeners are going to love the fact that you met Ed Sullivan long before the Beatles did. Oh, right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was on the Ed Sullivan show, wasn't I? (laughs) (laughs) It was not my greatest performance. Um, I, um, yeah, when I, well, I had been in New York for a couple of years and is that is that what you're asking? How I got onto the yeah? How did you find yourself on on the on the show and um, and I I just love to hear about the whole experience because of course we're talking about uh, what the quiz show era certainly. Oh gosh, it was huge. You know the the doing. Um, I mean, you were glued, everybody, every television watcher, because there were only three channels, you know, (laughs) you you didn't have much choice. But um, the game shows were just huge. And what happened was I had landed a job, which I was very excited to do, which was to be a showgirl in a remake of the Ziegfeld Follies. And so this was not anything that demanded any great acting talent, but just demanded you looking somewhat comely and um, and able to balance a huge headdress on top of your head and walk down these precipitous staircases. And um, the publicity department did decided to do an article. No, it was the New York Times decided to do an article on how smart showgirls were. You know, could you wear feathers and still have a brain? (laughs) So they gave us this really dumb little test, like, you know, which is smarter, a mouse or a chicken. And I remember us doing it in the dressing room. We were all comparing answers and laughing at the questions. But when it came out in the Times, they said... And probably because I was the only one of the girls who had graduated from college, they said I got a perfect score, and which did not make me popular in the dressing room. Actually. <laughs> um, and I, and then I heard that the people who ran the sixty-four thousand dollars question wanted me to come in and to uh, audition for it or to talk to them about it, and I said no. There was nothing that I was an expert on and I then it gets into the Lucien story he talked me into doing it and I thought well gee um and and Ken this gets into kind of an area that you have some experience with too Shakespeare right absolutely yeah and uh and I thought okay I was on this kind of project to read all of Shakespeare's plays which I didn't do and uh on the dressing room table was King Lear. And I thought, okay, if they give me three months maybe to just cram, I have a good memory, uh, maybe I could cram enough trivia about Shakespeare. And so I did go in and of course they were capitalizing on me being a showgirl. And I, and they gave me, uh, after three months, I said, I need three months. And they gave it to me. I studied like crazy. Not any of the real value of Shakespeare. I memorized a couple of, you know, speeches. But for the most part, it was just dates and, you know, names of characters and things like that. And um, then they gave me a test. And... Uh, said, okay, we're putting it on the air, and that's how it happened. Well, and it didn't just happen. You you won, right? Yeah, I won, but, you know, they knew what I knew, right? <laughs> they knew my strengths, and um, I was surprised that the question seemed rather easy, And um, but I, I didn't know what to do about it. I wasn't going to go and say, could you ask me harder questions so I can fail? So that's the way it went. And yes, I won $64,000. Yeah. 
And, and you know, for our listeners, um, I believe your, your, your questions were about Lear, but also what measure for measure uh, <laughs> and others. So um, I'm sure today I could not answer the questions, no matter how simple they were. Oh my God! Even well, though, even though Ken, I am because of the pandemic, I am actually finally reading through all of Shakespeare. I don't know if I could pull it off at this point, and I've taught senior seminars only devoted to Shakespeare. I would have to refresh my own memory <laughs> to be able to yeah. be successful. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, of course, this is before the big scandals that would would hit a few years later. Um, involving a different show, a less scrupulous show, apparently, uh, than yours. Yes, no, they didn't give us questions. I'm sure they, were, they, they had their ways of making it easy for us. But uh, if you were a popular contestant, right? Yeah. But um, no, they, they didn't, although they lumped everybody together. And, and I deal with that in the book and hopefully in an amusing way, because I thought I was going to go to jail when they, you know, when they, the scandal broke. Right. I saw it on a tabloid headline saying, quiz fraud, district attorney gets involved. Well, he was running for office. It was actually, I'm not sure, but I think it was the assistant district attorney. It, nobody got more publicity in their life than this guy did, and he actually won the election. In the meantime, he dragged everybody through about a thousand panic attacks. I bet. Yeah. Well, one of your um, you in the book, you have the the newspaper article, uh, which is a lovely cutout, and it says a wow moment of triumph and euphoria. It wouldn't be long before the aftermath turned complicated and far less joyous. And yeah. and I guess part of that aftermath involves this relationship, right? Uh, uh, yes, and, and it involves what happened to the money. Right, I mean, so I wonder if, um, and, and I have to tell you, this was a mic drop for me. I could not believe it because, um, you know, just full disclosure, I religiously watched Get Smart, um, <laughs> I, uh, and I can't wait to speak more about that in a moment. Um, and you were always this cool, sophisticated, for me, version of of the 60s intelligentsia, right? And, um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and, and yet, I can't believe this. I guess this could happen uh, to all of us at a certain level. And it just, it broke my heart that it happened to you. And, uh, and um, you know, so how did, how did you meet this guy? Uh, in the lobby of Carnegie Hall. I was waiting for, I, I was in the Ziegfeld Follies at that time, and I was waiting for one of the dancers to meet me for dinner before we went to the show. I mean, had to be backstage and, you know, get prepared. And um, so I'm standing in, in the lobby of Carnegie Hall. I'd had a dance class. They used to have dance studios uh, in Carnegie Hall. And I'd been to a dance class then. And this glamorous guy comes in with this thick French accent and asks me for a change. He pronounced it change for the telephone. And I, I gave him two dimes and a nickel, how things have changed. <laughs> and, um, and then he, I kept watching for my friend to come. And, and then suddenly he was beside me again with his French accent in gear and asked me to take something out of his eye. He said he had gotten something in his eye and presented me this white handkerchief. <coughs> I, um, I mean, have, was there ever a better pickup, you know, technique than right. that? I mean, how could you be suspicious? So I- And I looked, you're at Carnegie Hall. And we're at Carnegie Hall, the height of culture, right? And so I, I carefully kind of gingerly examined his eye and I said, no, there was nothing there. And we started talking and I was so excited to be talking with someone that handsome with that thick of French accent, because in those days, France was the premier country. I mean, the diplomatic language was not English, it was French. 
and everything good was French, starting with French champagnes and uh, French design. We used to copy all the French designers. You know, my mother sewed beautifully. And, and um, cinema. Huh? And I cinema, mean, right? I mean, you know. Cinema, the French cinema. And I was addicted to the French cinema. So then he said, told me that he was the half brother of, of Jean Piermont. And Jean Piermont, I'd seen it in films, and Lucien was even more handsome. And he looked like him. And, um, and then I was questioning him about other French stars, and he knew some of them. And actually, he had been married for one year to one of them. I and I was divorced, and so I was just blown away by all of this, and uh, that's how it the big adventure began. And I guess it was right one of these situations where it was really great until it wasn't. Yeah, it was really great. Oh, it was the great love of my life, and. And when it was over, which wasn't for almost 10 years, when it was over, my mother and I were having coffee one day and she said, I'm so glad that you uh, knew Lucien. And I was surprised, you know, and I said, even knowing the history, and she said, yes, because you were so in love and she said very few people get an opportunity to be that much in love. And I'm so glad you had the experience. And I agree. And of course, you know, I, I had nothing but, you know, at the end of the book, you know, I, there was no bitterness or anything. And I felt that I'd had the biggest adventure of my life. Well, you know, involving fleeing from the KGB. I mean, it was so crazy, zany um, time. And how could I ever have had that kind of fantasy come true? When did you, what were the, what were the signs that, that this wasn't real, that he wasn't this, you know, well-bred French, and he wasn't even French, right? No, <laughs> he was American. Yeah, but he was a refugee. You know, he was Belgian. And right, he was a refugee. What were the signs? I don't know if you've ever been caught in a romantic passion where you have so idealized the person, and later, in retrospect, you see all the red flags. But at the time, you just unconsciously even just bat them away. You know, they don't fit in with the story. They don't fit in with the magical scenario that you, the two of you are building together. And um, I mean, this is not a victim story. I have full responsibility for, you know, for my participation in it and and full appreciation for this imaginative, really brilliant, you know, guy who I was in a loving marriage for years, never, ever uh, doubting that that was true. Although your dad had some suspicions, right? <laughs> My dad knew immediately. He knew immediately. And... Um, I mean, my dad is was something of a skeptic, you know, about human nature. And my mother was as much of a romantic as I was. I mean, she was as, you know, intrigued by him as, you know, as most people were, actually. Not my dad. He, no. And there's a funny scene in the book where Lucien is having dinner for the first time with my dad. And... Um, and my dad is a wasp, you know, or was a wasp. So wasps, the real Puritan, you know, strain of wasp, um, they never ex 
they, they never expose their emotion except in these little tiny, you know, the little eyebrow lift or the, the little lip curl, just slight. But you have to have grown up with it to know what it means. And it really means thunder and lightning, but actually it's like nobody would even notice it's happening. So at the end of the dinner, Lucien, who had been in thinking he was impressing my dad, felt he'd had a real success. <laughs> I knew otherwise. I, your father um, is one of my favorite characters in the book. And I know we're talking about a work of nonfiction here, but, you know, nonfiction has characters, too. And I just adored him. And, and uh, Oh, I'm so happy to hear that because I didn't want him to come off badly. Oh no, he doesn't at all. He oh good. Yeah, yeah. No, he's um, uh, just I just adore his character and and um, oh. you know his efforts to be good and kind and all of those things and. Uh, well, yeah, he, um, he, he, he yeah he he sort of he stood on the sidelines and watched the whole thing unfurl. We'll be back with more from Barbara Felden after these messages. We're back with everything Fab Four. You mentioned earlier that it's not a victim story, and it isn't, because no. you summon your your faculties and your energies to begin plotting your way out and and off, and and part of that is get smart, right? Well, the the biggest part of it, uh, yes, get smart contributed in the. Get smart gave me maybe uh, more confidence in myself. So in that way, but it's a small way, the biggest contributor to it, honestly, Ken, was therapy. You know, was understanding how I got caught in it, uh, understanding the whole situation, understanding the part I was playing in it, and, uh, and just growing just getting stronger and becoming more myself and not reaching out of myself to feel fulfilled, not reaching for a fantasy or reaching for a handsome lover to prove that I was attractive. And you know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. That uh, it was more, I could see the world more clearly as time went on because I didn't need to see it in a false way in order to prop up my sense of security and um, and, uh, and and confidence. Now, shortly before Get Smart comes into your life, you had to have been watching the Ed Sullivan show on, on February 9th, 1964, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'll tell you the only reason I watched it um, I, it was 64. Absolutely. So is that when it was? Yes. I'm terrible with dates, but, um, Lucien, my apartment was on 60th street near park Avenue. And in 64, I had done the pilot. We didn't start until 65 to have it be on the air. So I was in New York at that time. And uh, we heard this roar go up from the street. Periodically, this roar would come up from the street. And we were on the fifth floor. And so we climbed up to the roof to see what was going on and looked over the parapet down onto Park Avenue. And there was a, a mob of young women on Park Avenue spilling off the sidewalk. And they were roaring. And I asked somebody else who lived in the apartment, what, what are they screaming about? And somebody said, it's the Beatles. The Beatles are in town. I said, the what? The Beatles, like in the bug? Like <laughs> those crawly things? The Beatles? Yeah, yeah, they're going to be on Ed Sullivan. So that's why I watched Ed Sullivan. I was totally skeptical and thought, this is just so silly. Um, this little boy band, and I turned it on, and I got it instantly. I was absolutely charmed by their 
light, you know, the optimism of it, the freedom, the fun, that spirit that they had. And um, yeah, so that was my introduction. Well, you know, and, and in preparing for today and our, our conversation, it's interesting how, you know, for the run of this, this wonderful show that we'll talk about in a moment, you know, you're, in, you're sort of at the vanguard of the 1960s with the mods and the Beatles and this new kind of sophisticated fashion culture uh, that exists around. And even, um, you know, the spoofing of the Cold War and spydom and, and all of those things. That there must have been, maybe you weren't experiencing them at the time, but there must have been this, this kind of strange parallel world that was unfolding. Uh, the, the, you mean the the parallel world is the culture as it unfolded? Yes. Where I'm standing in a 50s culture, right? Right. Watching this happen explode around me and participating um, because that's all there was to participate in. Uh, yeah, it was my feeling about it. And when I went to England, I was doing some television over there was that period was something that appeals to me very much, which is freedom, you know? It was just breaking barriers in, in not, not in a negative way, because it seemed very positive. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't angry. The lyrics weren't angry. It was life, you know? It was like people were just breaking out of their class in England, you know, it was okay to move up through the, you know, up through that stratification that the English have that, that we have, I think, less in that regard. But um, it, it was fun. It was, it, the colors were bright. You know, it wasn't grunge. <laughs> you know, it was, <laughs> Uh, I remember when I was doing the show, I, I had rented this little house in California and, and the sun out there it was such a novelty to me to have it on all the time. Right. <laughs> and a friend brought over um, the Tijuana Brass. I mean, not the group, <laughs> brought over a, a record of the Tijuana Brass. And that happy music, in the sunlight in, on a California morning with Bougainvillea just scrambling all over the house. I just, one of the more pleasant, you know, memories I have of living there. It is. And then there was that possibility and, um, and you spoke to it so well just now discussing the idea of freedom and what might come next that I think I had it right the first time. There was the possible. I'm curious if um, so. So, how do you come into the orbit of Mel Brooks and and Buck Henry, who was such a treasure? Uh, oh God, we loved Buck. I <clears throat> that yeah, I adored him. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, how did well because of the show is how I met them. Uh, mostly Buck because um, although I, I knew Mel uh, on and off over those years, but Buck is the one who stayed with the show, so he was there every day, you know. But uh, Talent Associates owned that show and they created the show, and they are the ones who went to Buck and Mel and said we want to do almost a comic book version of. Um, James Bond, and uh, when they got the script, they had already used me in two other of their shows. Uh, the first was George Scott's gritty uh, um, show about it was set in New York. Uh, he was he played a, a social worker, and that was a fluke that I was in that show because my agent had, I was at that time under contract to Revlon. So I basically stopped acting. I'd been discouraged. And uh, he said, you know, there's this one line, just go over to George's set and 
all you have to do is a disco scene and a little line. And I said, no, I'm fine doing commercials. I'm happy. He said, Barbara, you're doing nothing today. Get in a cab. So I did. And I didn't approach George, even though I'd had dinner with him once with his wife, Colleen Dewhurst, who had taken me under her wing in, in um, a summer stock in Pittsburgh, actually. And so I did my one line and I was preparing to leave and, and Colleen showed up on the set that day and she said, what are you doing here? And I said, I just did this little extra thing. And she said, come in George's dressing room. And I went in and there was the great George Scott. And, and he, he was very sweet and said, hey, how about playing my girlfriend? Would you be, the way he put it, he said, would you, would you be willing to play my girlfriend? in the next next week's episode. And I thought that was just the most bizarre way to ask an actor if they'd be willing to play <laughs> with the greatest actors. And so I did. And Talent Associates, that was their show. Oh, and it, that was East Side, West Side, right? East Side, West Side, yeah. And then they cast me in Craig Stevens' show, Mr. Broadway, which was a comedy and I played um, an industrial spy in kind of a jumpsuit. And really, it was 99's look with the bangs and the short hair and all that. And, uh, and then when they got the script for Get Smart, they said, that's her. That's the character. And so they just offered me the show. I mean, if I'd had to audition for it, maybe I wouldn't have gotten it. But they just gave it to me. So it, it, it was meant to be, as we say. <laughs> yeah, and they made it so... Uh, I first said no, I didn't want to leave New York. And I certainly didn't want to sign away five years of my life in the off chance it would be a success. Um, so I said no. And then they came back and they said, um, you, only, you have the option, you can leave after two years. And so, of course, after two years, I think they were pretty sure I wasn't going to leave. And so was <laughs> I at that point. Well, and it goes on to have, what, 138 episodes. I mean, it's uh, and, and quite beloved. So it premieres in September 1965, which would be after the Beatles, of course, had help where they did their own sort of zany take on on the world of spies and James Bond. But Get Smart was almost more knowing in a way, right? I mean, it had good and evil, and, uh, chaos and control. Um, <laughs> if only life were that easy, right? That we could exert control and the world would be rid of chaos. Um, so, and the first time you meet Don Adams, right, is basically right before you're going to read your lines? Absolutely. We never rehearsed. I, uh, we never met. And I, so the first time I met him, I was on the set in my costume and they, he came over, they brought him over and said, okay, he stood on his marks. And, uh, and we both kind of sized each other up, which was an uncomfortable moment because I was taller than him. And we had never stood next to each other, of course, before. And so that became a kind of sometimes amusing, sometimes disconcerting for both of us, uh, tug of war about, you know, that discrepancy. <laughs> Even with his shoe phone on, he wasn't taller. No, he, yeah, no. Even even with those special shoes, um, <laughs> but we had amusing ways of dealing with it. You know, if if we were working in the sand, like a desert scene or something, he'd dig a hole for me to stand in. Or if we were on a hill, I would always stand on the downside part of the hill, and um, I worked in my bare feet most of the time. <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah. Well, it, it seems I, I, I rewatched the pilot, you know, just to reacclimate myself with this show that I've always loved and loved so much. And uh, it seems like you guys are having fun from really the beginning. Um, 
what was it like working with with the likes of of Buck Henry at that time? He, he had left such a mark, and I think sometimes an underappreciated one uh, on on the American arts during that period and even later, of course. He was unique in every way. You know, there's no duplicate, not that there's a duplicate for anyone in the world, but some people are more like the rest of the world. Buck Henry was not like the rest of the world. He had a wry way of looking at the world, almost like seeing it in an astigmatic way where everything is just a little weird. And he was so soft-spoken, so gentle, so subversive <laughs> in the sweetest. He was just dearness and uh, clever and brilliant. And everybody knew it. We all, you know, everybody respected him. And it was always a treat when it came down on the set. You, you said something just before this. Um, well, first of all, I don't, I don't, I don't want to slight Mel. Mel, we all know how brilliant Mel is. And he's just, you know, uh, one of the, the great, not only, well, one of the great comedic minds probably in, of all time. Um, but he didn't stay with the show. You know, he directed one. He wrote a couple over the course of the years. Um, but, you know, he was the, the co-master mind of the show with Buck. But you mentioned earlier, uh, um, before the Buck question, uh, Don, uh, uh, working with Don, you said it, it seemed like we had so much fun. It really did, yeah. Um, it... Yeah. There really is such a thing as chemistry, you know, and the chemistry between Don and me Everybody was so relieved to see that it existed, first of all, because they had no idea what it would be like when they put these two chemical people together. And um, it, But for both of us, from the first time we heard action, the chemistry just uh, uh, clicked in. And that's what made it so much fun. It was his energy and my response to his energy. And um, it was like flying, really. It, it was wonderful acting with him. I never had to, I never had to worry about my performance because he was there making it happen. And all I had to do was just look in his eyes and, and off we would go, you know? So, um, Don and I personally, uh, uh, during those years, um, didn't really know how to converse. First of all, he didn't have time because he had so much responsibility on the show and felt um, like he had to keep an eye on so many things. So I, was, I stayed out of his way mostly. Um, we were always very, very kind and sweet to each other. But there was no, there was very little conversation during those years. Later, when I hadn't seen him for 20 years and we had to do some event together and saw each other again, it was as though it had always been there, the affection and it had just been growing over the years, even though we didn't see each other and just had blossomed by the time uh, we got together later. And uh, we were just the sweetest friends for the rest of his life. Was, that magic was so apparent, really, from, like you said, the word action or the word go. And, and it spilled over, it seems like, too, to the lovely man who played the chief. And then Siegfried, when he, of course, rolls into the cast. Um, it seemed to be pretty seamless, that kind of, as you said, energy that developed there. Yeah, uh, Ed Platt was just the anchor in the show. His his gravitas as that as chief just held the show grounded. You know, he had the hardest dialogue to say. He was always having to spit out the <laughs> endless um, uh, 
spewing of technical terms. Uh, I, I wouldn't have wanted to have his dialogue. Uh, Bernie Capel is one of my very dearest friends, and he was an element in that show. It was like if you're cooking something, you don't want to leave that. It's like the garlic in an Italian sauce. I mean, you don't want to leave that element out. He is so talented. And I asked him recently what was the best, the, the most challenging the th role, the one that would give him the most opportunity to do what he uniquely can do. And he said Siegfried. I totally believe it because he disappears into that role. When you see him in anything else, right, He's he has different aspects uh, yeah. to his, his character and what I assume is his real persona. And then there's Siegfried. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that crazy uh, opportunity, you know, to just to to invent something like that, the challenge of it and the pleasure of it. And it gave you guys such a wonderful antagonist to, you know, in terms of the narrative of the show. Yeah, when we could keep a straight face. <laughs> so there was a lot of breaking, right, as they say. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah, there was... Um, that's the wonderful thing about doing a comedy is because, first of all, the material's funny. And so you're an audience to it as well as a participant. And so there was a lot of laughter on the set. I've, well, I've done, been on sets of dramatic shows. They're not nearly as much fun. I believe it. And uh, your character especially, I think, connected with so many of us because... Um, you know, you've got, like you said, the chief's trying to hold it together. He's trying to deal with Max. <laughs> you've got Max, who is, you know, a wreck in a lot of ways. And then there's this sort of sophisticated woman, <laughs> right, who kind of has it together and has a sort of knowing character. And, and you brought so much to that. Um, it's it really interesting from a sociological point of view, I think that that was written in 64, right. 63, 64. And uh, this was before the women's movement. And women in the 50s, which is when I came of age, I, I my role model, I mean, was my mother who stayed at home and everybody else's mother who stayed at home and were deferential to their husbands. If their husbands were going to move to Kathmandu, they packed up and moved there. You know, there was no, uh, there was no sense of self determination, and I and and you know how to handle men. And I mean, I just saw that all the time. The way my mother handled my dad, and uh, you diffuse whatever anger there is, you are just endlessly listening and giving and uh, selfless. And so coming into the 60s, for Mel Brooks and Buck to conceive of a woman like 99, I was what artists do. They predict what's going to happen. They have their little feelers out and they sort of sense where the culture is going. And they were absolutely right in predicting feminism. And yeah. this character reflects that. And the, the, what I brought to it was the deference and the sort of loving your guy aspect of the 50s. And what they gave me that I performed was independence and knowingness and uh, I, I, the willingness to seem intelligent. And uh, so I hadn't caught up to that or I didn't, you know, I wasn't involved that far. So 99 actually represented 
uh, a more evolved person than I was at that time. As the series went on, uh, I did become more like 99 in that kind of confident way. So speaking of, of being evolved and, and being a kind of new woman, um, you know, getting smarter, uh, as our audience will learn, is not your first book. It's your second book. And before we uh, depart today, we, we must talk about the, the first book that you wrote, Living Alone and Loving It, which, of course, is a, a nice wry reference to <laughs> get smart in its own way and loving it. Um, and there's a lot of power and empowerment in that book. Um, about who we are as people and these expectations of how we should live. And, and you, speak, you spoke movingly about, just now and earlier, about this kind of 1950s model that has cast this long shadow, right, about how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to behave. And yet you have lived your life in a very forward-thinking way. Um, and I wonder if you could speak about that for a moment, about about living alone and, um, and of course, <laughs> and the fear that people have about if I'm alone, can I handle being alone? Can I be alone with myself? And yet you come right out uh, in that powerful book and address those questions. Yeah, I guess if, if, if I have, um, I guess my goal in life has been to master myself. You know, I and I was helped along that path by psychoanalysis and by other therapy as well or before I, I began psychoanalysis. And the, the basis of all of those psychologies is to understand why you're the way you are. And if it's a negative thing, to be able to trace it back to the source and to understand that that happened to a child and you're no longer a child <laughs> and to retrain your psyche from going into those old patterns of thought and, and reaction. So I, um, I, I, you know, when people think about their lives and they think about their careers, I think about my progress through understanding myself and it's partly through therapy and partly through literature. Uh, through certain writers, wise people, people so much wiser than anyone you would meet at a dinner party or anywhere in life. And there they are on the shelf to be, to be introduced to and to, so that they can add their thought to your journey. And I had met a number of women. I'd been living alone for a number of years. And I met a number of women who just were waiting for Mr. Wright to come along and they felt they were living a half life. And I was happier than I'd ever been in my life. And so I decided to write some essays on different aspects of living alone, starting with loneliness. And, um, and I learned also from writing it, I learned I, or at least I crystallized in my mind what I had been learning all along, that we're not alone. <laughs> That's it's such a false premise. We're in a world of other people. We're, and it can, be, it can be the grocer. It can be, you know, it could be the doorman. Uh, it could be the guy at the filling station. These are all human connections, and they're all valuable. And the important thing is to connect with people and to put in the, uh, the effort, like a job almost, of creating a fabric of human connections. You don't really have to do as much when you're married because you've got to build in social life. But if you're on your own, you need a lot of human supplies because people move away, they die they you know they disappear and that takes you out into the world so the what i believe the book is about is one reaching out to the world through other people through you know close friends 
even lovers. I mean, it depends on your particular, you know, life. And reaching in, and that's the other really, really important element, is to to do something creative. It doesn't even matter what you do. Um, Ken, I was listening to a podcast of yours, uh, a couple of them actually, and uh, these people were obsessed with the Beatles. And I thought that informs their life because they went deeply into it. And if you go deeply into anything, you know, whether it's reading or painting or gardening or cooking, you never get bored and you're always connected in a way that nothing is missing when you're doing those things. And so you can build a life on your own that every day is engaging. And that's what I was striving for to communicate. And it's something that I still, you know, I still work on. It sounds like part of the successful formula for living alone is having something that you're passionate about, that consumes you, that drives you. Well, you have all of this background to bring to uh, what you're most famous for, right? Uh, The Beatles and the music of that era. Absolutely. And I'm, what I'm interested in with them and what keeps me coming back is um, I've never been a big fan in, in that pure fanish way, but I'm interested in the way they begin, you know, it's sort of ground zero in 1962. And they end up at this very high lofty place when they make their Abbey Road album. And then they walk off the stage forever. Yeah. Wow. And creating a mystique, but also a body of work that Mm -hmm. grows exponentially over those brief seven years uh, when they're they're working in the recording studio. And I don't know that I found anything else like that in art where Mm. the trajectory is so upwardly moving. You know, you've you've read most, if not all of Shakespeare. And, you know, he has ups and downs. Now he's a working playwright. And he's got to keep the material coming. And, and frankly, nobody thought theater was great art <laughs> right at those days. Um, but I, I have trouble seeing any other body of work, even with painters, where they go out so spectacularly, right? I guess maybe Mozart with the Requiem, but maybe that's not a good example given his condition. Um. Yeah, no, I can see why you're fascinated with that, that there's a time to exit. There's a time you're, it's almost of your own time and you've milked that totally. And that's it. I mean, how many people can go on to the next? Well, they couldn't have, they they would have had to change radically to, to be popular again, right? Absolutely. And and now, of course, they're popular for what they left the world with, as opposed to these starts and restarts and what inevitably would have happened. And I suppose if, if John Lennon had not been murdered, um, there might be a different ending to some of this and maybe one that is more magical or less so. And you must have been in the city when that happened, right? I was, yeah. Now, did you ever happen to meet him in your travels? I just met him when I, I mean, my travels, I was going to visit a friend at the, um, what's the name of the hotel? The Dakota. I mean, the Dakota. And I went into the area where you announce who you are, and he was coming out, and he recognized me from Get Smart. And he said something, just something very sweet, you know, and I... And just in passing, so that was my only brush with him. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon 1980, The Last Days of the Life, and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie Al Evans. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, 
is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a Wonderwall production. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. Once you see me.